William Tyndale, legally translated two-thirds of the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English during the early 1500s, which most agree was the match that lit the fire of the English Reformation. Why is that? Well, by doing so, he gave every person in England the opportunity to read the Bible for themselves in their own language, which at that time was against the law according to the Roman Catholic Church. Their view, of course, was that it's dangerous to translate Scripture from one language into another because in translation, the right understanding might get lost. So they decreed that no man by his own authority should translate any passage of the Bible into English and that no man should read any such book in part or in whole. Well, Tyndale disagreed, which forced him to leave his country and his home and spend the next 10 years of his life trying to avoid getting caught, convicted, and killed, while at the same time translating, printing, and distributing as much of the Bible as humanly possible. 1534, he published in English the entire Pentateuch, as well as Joshua through Second Chronicles, Jonah, and the entire New Testament. All of that before being burned at the stake in 1536. Why do I bring him up this morning? Well, because he was not just a brilliant man graduating from Oxford and Cambridge, proficient in eight languages. He was not just a courageous man willing to die for the sake of the English Bible. But Tim Dale was a humble man who wholeheartedly entrusted his soul to God. Even in the midst of unbelievable danger and injustice, Because Tyndale could have done anything he wanted to do with his life. But instead, he lived in total obscurity. Because he couldn't afford to have his identity known in fear of being identified, captured, and killed. Tyndale could have cared less. Because he wasn't living for his own glory, but for the glory of God. Seen most clearly in entrusting his soul completely to God and humbling himself all the way to the point of death. Not death on a cross, but death at the stake. Because when they finally caught him, they convicted him of crimes such as illegally translating the Bible and asserting that justification was by faith alone in Christ alone. So they killed him. Listen to this. When they did, they not only put chains around his neck and strangled him, but lit a fire and burned him at the stake. Then after he was dead twice, they placed gunpowder around him and blew up his dead body. And yet, do you know what Tyndale did before he died? He looked up to heaven and he prayed, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. So even in the midst of suffering, injustice, and dying, He wholeheartedly entrusted himself to God and submitted to his good and perfect plan for his life, and he walked in humble obedience, doing good. How could he do that? Well, he believed in a God who is sovereign and who is good, who will one day in and of himself make all things right, which is the point of 1 Samuel chapters 24 to 26. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. It's on page 1016, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also encourage you to grab my outline. 
have it in front of you. As you're turning, I want to let you know there's something a bit unusual about these three chapters, because chapters 24 and 26 are essentially identical stories which serve as bookends for the main story, which is in chapter 25. So my plan this morning, a little unusual, is to quickly review chapters 24 and 26 in order to show you not only the similarities, but the main point that David must be a king who is righteous, which means he must not take the kingdom by force or work salvation for himself, but wholeheartedly entrust himself to God for his salvation, his kingdom, and his future, even in the midst of suffering and injustice. Where does he learn that lesson? In the middle, chapter 25. So we're going to look at 24 to 26. Then we're going to come back and spend time in chapter 25. So let's start comparing chapter 24 and chapter 26. So number one, the righteous king. Look with me at chapter 23, actually, verse 19. So 23, verse 19, it says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now flip forward, you're going to go back and forth a little bit, but flip forward to 24 verse 2. It says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men. So crystal clear, right? Number one, Saul and 3,000 men seek to kill David. But now look at how chapter 26 starts. So here's the comparison. Chapter 26 verse 1, it says, just like 2319, then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David. So almost identical to what we just read. But clearly, Saul and 3,000 men seek to kill David. If you remember from last week, chapter 24, verse 3, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, meaning he goes to the bathroom. David and his men just so happen to be there, so they start silently singing, right? This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice if you just strike down this wicked seed of the serpent once for all. So number two, God clearly gives Saul into the hands of David and his men, and they desperately want David to kill Saul. What does David do? Cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and lets him live. Well, now look at chapter 26, verse 7. Saul and his entire army are camped out in Ziph, and they're asleep. Verse 7 says, So David and Abishai went to Saul's army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear struck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Can't you hear it? This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Abishai says, please, let me pin Saul to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not need to strike him twice. So again, number two, God clearly gives Saul into the hands of David and his men. But what does David do? Verse 9. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and notice, be guiltless. 
Meaning, if you kill the anointed, then you're sinning against God. And God's king must be guiltless, must be sinless and righteous. So verse 10, David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. Which, by the way, is exactly what's going to happen to Saul, chapter 31, when he dies at the hands of the Philistines. So as the Lord lives, the Lord will take Saul's life, not David. Meaning, verse 11, the Lord forbid it that I, David, should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that it is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Why were they all asleep? Because a deep sleep, notice, from the Lord had fallen upon them. So number three, David rightly spares Saul's life, both in chapter 24 and in chapter 26. So both times, Saul is right there, right in front of David, God giving Saul into David's hands, and both times David forbid them from killing Saul, because to do so would be sin, because David would be taking the kingdom by force rather than letting God give it to him in his good and perfect timing. So David must entrust himself to God, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of injustice, which David highlights. Look at chapter 24, verse 13. David says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you, Saul. So after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? Notice, a flea? May the Lord be judge and give sentence between me and you. Now flip forward to chapter 26, verse 18, where David says again, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hands? Verse 20, now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come down to seek, notice, a single flea. Like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And in both chapters, number four, Saul repents and departs. 26 verse 21, Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, Saul says, I have acted foolishly. Or you could say, I am a fool. David said, verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of tribulation. Skip down to the last sentence in chapter 26. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. So what's the point? The point is that these two chapters, chapters 24 and 26, are nearly identical stories. And when the Bible does that, we call it a chiasm, which is the letter X, because 
What's in the middle is the main point. The two things are pointing to the middle, the main point. So chapters 24, 25, and 26 are all communicating one idea. That the one true king must be a king who is righteous, which means he must not take the kingdom by force or work salvation for himself, but instead wholeheartedly entrust himself to God for his salvation, his kingdom, and his future, which God promised through his own means. So he must trust God, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of injustice. But where does David learn that lesson? Well, he learns it in chapter 25 through a woman named Abigail. So if you would, flip to 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Now we're going to walk through this narrative together. Number two, the trusting king. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness at Paran, And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, name of the man was Nabal, which literally means fool. His name is fool. The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man, Nabal, was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, knowing chapters 24 and 26, you have to see that the author wants us to connect Nabal to Saul. That's why he gives us all of these literary clues, like the fact that Nabal has 3,000 sheep. Remember 24 verse 2, Saul took 3,000 men to seek David's life. 26 verse 2, Saul took 3,000 men to seek David's life. And Nabal's name literally means fool. 26 verse 21, Saul will say, I acted foolishly or literally I am a fool. So the author is connecting Nabal to Saul. So Nabal is acting just like Saul in this narrative. So with all those details in place, look at verse 3. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him, notice, in my name. Thus you shall greet him, peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
These are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, look at this, verse 13, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. Everyone apparently has got a sword. (laughs) And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So what's A, the horrible offense? Well, it's obviously that David and his men took complete care of Nabal's shepherds while they were out in the middle of nowhere, which is a very big deal. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, there weren't sheriffs or cops or laws and orders in the middle of the wilderness. But instead, every man for himself. And yet David and his men, these men right here in front of him, were constantly on the run from Saul. And yet they protected and defended, provided safety and security without fail for every single one of Nabal's shepherds the entire time. But now when David asks for a single act of kindness in return from Nabal, who is very rich, he says, who is David? Are you kidding me? No doubt, Nabal is a total fool. And what's the consequence? Verse 13, David and his men are strapping on their sword. For what purpose? Verse 21 fills the sin. Now David had said, notice how that's past tense. David had said, probably said it at the same time as verse 13. The narrative just puts it on hold for us, but we're going to go there, right? David said, verse 21, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And yet he had returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. What's David saying? He's saying, I'm going to kill every single one of Nabal's men. If not every man, woman, and child, ox, donkey, and sheep by the edge of the shore. Who does that sound like to you? That sounds like Saul, doesn't it? That's exactly right. So the tension here is what kind of king is David going to be? Is he going to be a king like all the other nations who rules with anger and with vengeance, bloodshed and terror? Or is he a king with a heart after God's own heart who entrusts himself to God, rests in his perfect plan, and even steps in and takes the place for sinners as a substitute? We shall soon see. But first, let's look at B, the immediate intervention. Look at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And notice from the young man's perspective, Nabal railed at them. Yet the men, David's men, were very good to us. And we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields. As long as we went with them They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. 
For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Notice the clarity that this young man has because he knows Nabal is a worthless man. By the way, do you know who else is described as worthless in 1 Samuel? Eli's sons. Hopney and Phineas, chapter 2, verse 12, described as worthless men who did not know the Lord. So this servant has incredible clarity, and he immediately tells Abigail, who we already know, verse 3, is discerning. His prayer is that she's going to know what to do, and she does. Verse 18 Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep ready prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. So Abigail shows great clarity because she knows she has to move quickly, like immediately because the offense against David was horrible. So she anticipates exactly what David is going to do. He's going to kill Nabal and all that he owns. So how does she respond? She gathers everything that David asks for and no doubt so much more. Because David asked for a feast, verse 8. So what does she prepare? A feast fit for a king and for all of his men. But what we can't possibly anticipate is see the sacrificial clarification that she brings to David. Look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from her donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said to him, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So Abigail essentially says, Let me stand in Nabal's place. Put his guilt on me. Put his shame on me. The consequences for his sin on me. Blame me, David, as if his sin were my sin. Let me sacrifice my life for his life. So there's this glorious picture of substitutionary atonement going on, which is exactly what David should be like, right? Because Abigail is showing herself to be more righteous than David. So God is teaching David through Abigail on what it looks like to be a humble, sacrificial, trusting king. Because she doesn't stop there. But says, please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly, foolishness is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because, notice this, Abigail says, the Lord has restrained you 
from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. So Abigail's appealing to God's sovereign protection over this whole event. That he ultimately prevented David from butt guilt and from murder and from saving with his own hand. So self-deliverance rather than a God-given, God-provided, God-empowered salvation accomplished only through God's glorious intervention. Now then, she says, David, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For notice the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. My goodness, that's incredible language, isn't it? Especially in 1 Samuel. Because it's a direct connection to God's future promise that will be given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That God will establish the throne of David's kingdom forever. Why is that? Because, Abigail says, my Lord is fighting the battle of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. You see, the king must be innocent. He must be blameless. He must be sinless, and he must be righteous. Because evil shall not be found in you, David. Verse 29, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or of pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Are you seeing the sacrificial clarity that Abigail has? I mean, first in offering herself as a substitute for Nabal and for Nabal's sin. But then the willingness to speak directly to King David. And to appeal to him to not shed blood and to not save himself, but to wholeheartedly entrust himself to God who judges righteously. I mean, can you even imagine the clarity, the courage, and the conviction Abigail must have had to say these things? (laughs) Remember, to an irate King David at the time who's already on the way to murder Nabal and all that he has for the horrible offense that he committed. She speaks that truth into his life. So then here's the question, right? How is David going to respond? Well, let's pick it up. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would have, had, there would have not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice And I have granted your petition. So David blesses Abigail for what she has done. And he blesses the Lord for keeping him from killing Nabal. And from saving by his own hand, his own efforts, and his own means. 
So he praises God for keeping him from self-deliverance rather than a God-given, God-provided, God-empowered salvation that can only come through God's great work of redemption. And just look at the glory and the splendor and the wonder of the divine resolution. Verse 36 And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal. What does that mean? No, it means he went to the bathroom. Well, that makes you think of somebody else who went to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom. But do you see how Nabal is described as a man like Saul? He's rich. He's foolish. He's harsh and badly behaved. He's a worthless man who does not know the Lord. And he's having a feast when his life is in total danger. Nonetheless, verse 37, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Notice the Lord has returned the evil on Nabal on his own head. What's the point of this chapter? And these three chapters together, is it not to teach us that the one true king must be a man who wholeheartedly trusts God, good and perfect plan, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of injustice, which means he must be a sinless king. Just like David said, blessed be the Lord who kept me from wrongdoing, even in the midst of Nabal's evil. So he must be a sinless king a blameless king and a righteous king, even in the midst of suffering and injustice. But Abigail has also taught us that the king must be a humble king who is willing to sacrifice himself, in fact, lay down his life for the sins of others, even if they are wicked and foolish and sinful. So he must be a humble king sacrificial, sinless king who's willing to offer his own life so that others might live. And yet it's crystal clear, isn't it? That the wicked will indeed perish. Nabal is dead. But God took his life, not David. So David was prevented from wrong, doing evil and sin. Thanks be to God. Yet can you even believe it? After all of that, how does 1 Samuel 25 end? It ends with David taking Abigail as his wife. But not just Abigail, but another woman as well. Look at verse 43. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Wives, meaning plural. David has multiple wives, which means 
that David is disobeying the specific command for kings in Deuteronomy 17, 17, which says, to not acquire many wives, lest your heart turn away from the one true God. So already we see David's decline, don't we? And already it's crystal clear that David's not the ultimate king that we need. But be clear, the whole Bible is teaching us that we absolutely need a king after God's own heart. We need a king who's sinless, blameless, and righteous. We need a king who wholeheartedly trusts God's good and perfect plan, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of terrible injustice. And we need a king who is willing to stand in the midst of the injustice in order to take our place and to say, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because that's a king who can bear our sorrow, our guilt, and our shame because he's sinless. So he can stand in our place as our substitute and he can say, put their guilt on me. Their shame on me. The consequences of their sin on me. Let my sacrifice be in their place. Let me die that they might live. That's the glory of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. But let me show you. If you would flip forward to Matthew chapter 1, page 807, if you're using the Bible's in the chairs in front of you. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Jesus came for a specific reason, didn't he? To be our Savior King, number three. So even at his birth, it's crystal clear that Jesus came on a mission. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, that Mary shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is clearly born into dangerous times, isn't he? Because he's born into the time of Herod, who was a paranoid king, constantly seeking Jesus' life. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So King Herod has a competing king. What's the result? Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why in the world is all of Jerusalem troubled? Well, because Herod is a paranoid king who could easily be described as harsh and badly behaved, worthless, and a man who does not know the Lord, which is evident and obvious because he kills every baby two years old and younger in an attempt to murder King Jesus. So Jesus is clearly a king, king of the Jews, who's born into a dangerous situation and who will certainly suffer, constantly being chased around during his entire life by people who are trying to kill him. What about injustice? 
My goodness, what would you call the kangaroo court that tried and convicted him, including Caiaphas, the chief priest and the Pharisees, who in Matthew chapter 26, verse 60, says brought forth many false witnesses to testify against him. Yet when he stands before Pontius Pilate, he says, I find no guilt in this man. Then they send him off to Herod. What does Herod say? He says, this man is not guilty of any of your charges. Jesus is without sin. He's blameless, sinless, and righteous, which makes him an adequate substitute to stand in our place and to say, on me alone be the guilt. Which is exactly what Jesus did when he was crucified, King of the Jews. He bore our sorrow, our guilt, and our shame, saying for each and every believer, put their guilt on me. Put their shame on me. Put their sin on me and let me die so that they might live. How was he able to do that? By wholeheartedly entrusting himself to God. Because that's what was required. Oh, the glory of the Bible that his blood alone must be shed in order to work salvation for others. Don't you see? That's exactly what David was prevented from doing. But exactly what King Jesus must do. But it required him to wholeheartedly entrust himself to God. In fact, flip forward to Matthew 26, verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Jesus had to entrust himself to God. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So Jesus wholeheartedly entrusted himself to God, bearing our guilt, shame, and sin. His blood shed, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be saved. Now let me just say to anyone who's here this morning, who has not yet wholeheartedly entrusted themselves to Christ, oh, I appeal to you, there's no other way to experience salvation other than to trust in the Lord Jesus. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you might be saved. So you can't simply earn your way to heaven because you're sinful, and the wages of sin is death, meaning eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And be clear, because the wicked will certainly be judged, just like Nabal. So you have no other choice but to look outside yourself and to entrust yourself to King Jesus, who came on a mission to save you from your sins. He came to save you from your sins, but that still requires you to trust him. You have to trust him. You have to look to him. You have to believe in him. You have to rest in his finished work on your behalf. 
Otherwise, there is no salvation. Don't you see he's the one true king that you need? But you have to entrust yourself to him. And there's no halfway here. There's no partial trusting. You can't have one hand in your back pocket and then give him part of your life. It doesn't work that way. You have to be all in when it comes to King Jesus. But oh my goodness, it is worth it. So I appeal to you. Put your faith in the one true king who willingly stands in your place, bears your sorrow, your guilt, and your shame, and offers you life for all eternity. I invite you, entrust yourself to God. And to you, dear believer, I want to challenge you. I want to exhort you to continue to entrust yourself to God because that's what the Christian life is all about. That even in the midst of the difficulties, the trials, the suffering, and the injustice, that you continue to trust in the Lord, not leaning on your own understanding or even on your own definition of what is good and helpful, but entrusting yourself to God wholeheartedly while doing good. In fact, let me just share with you how clear the Bible is on this. Flip forward to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. Look at what Peter says in verse 12. These are sweet words, helpful words for us this morning. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Look at verse 15. Peter says, let not one of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice the context. Because it's in the midst of the fiery trial when people are persecuting us because of our faith. But he also says, entrust ourselves to God whenever we suffer according to God's will, which would obviously include health issues, loss of loved ones, broken relationships, and anything else that the Lord brings our way to grow us in godliness. But look again at verse 19. Therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't you see? That's why we can be absolutely committed to doing good. Because we don't have to worry about protecting ourselves. Why? Because God is faithful and he's got us. 
So there's not a single difficulty, trial, or even tiny bit of suffering or injustice that isn't directly from his hand to your life for your good. That's why Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Psalm 84.11 says, no good thing does God withhold from those who trust him. And when we get that, I mean, when we really, really get that, that God is faithful to work for our greatest good, even through the suffering and through the injustice, then we're freed up to do the greatest good that we can possibly do. For his glory, his honor, and his praise, including living on the run without country or home, like William Tyndale did. And even to the point of being burned at the stake, like William Tyndale did, so that the Bible can be translated into a language that people can read. But it's whatever the Lord has for you, according to his will, his good and perfect plan in your life. So it's not just dying at the stake. It's being a stay-at-home mom, faithfully raising your kids. It's being a regular guy who loves the word and shares it with other regular guys who don't yet know the Lord. It's suffering through cancer. It's loving a difficult spouse. It's raising unruly kids. It's going to the ER. It's getting up every morning and working so you can provide for your family. Or whatever the Lord has for your life. Oh, I exhort you, entrust yourself to God because He is faithful. He is faithful. Seen most clearly in Christ's death on the cross for your salvation so you can entrust yourself to God. And then you can do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you possibly can. And then you get to go home to glory. And hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. May God give us the grace that we would be a people who entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, such a helpful word this morning. I want to pray for any who are here this morning who don't yet know the Lord. Lord, I can't even imagine the difficulty of walking through this world without knowing the faithful creator and the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life to give me life and empower me to navigate the difficulties of this world. Lord, I pray that you would work in their minds and in their hearts that they would see the glory of the Lord Jesus and that they would wholeheartedly entrust themselves to him, repenting of their sins, believing in his finished work on the cross and living their lives for his glory, honor, and praise. 
And Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to continue to entrust ourselves to God, regardless of the difficulties or the trials or the suffering or the injustice. May we be those who are found faithful, trusting in the Lord our God and doing good. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.